dearest J. Crew, a few weeks back, we did a live show at one of the greatest synagogues I have ever been to. The most spirit-filled, the most Hamish, the warmest Hollis Hills Bayside Jewish Center in Queens was absolutely the most welcoming place you could imagine. They packed the room and made us feel welcome. It was the kind of welcome that we expect when we've taken three flights with two connections to get to a live show in the middle of nowhere. But in fact, we had just hopped on the LIE and there we were, the soul of Jewelry, Hollis Hills Bayside Jewish Center. And it turned out to be one of our favorite shows ever. Have a listen. Live from the Hollis Hills Bayside Jewish Center, this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Thank you. And Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibovitz. Let's go Mets! (laughs) We are so excited to be here in beautiful Queens. We have two incredible podcasting guests for you tonight. Our Jew of the Week is Leon Nafok from the podcast Slow Burn and the brand new podcast Fiasco. And our Gentile of the Week is Claire Malone from the 538 Politics Podcast. But before we get to them, I just want to check in with my co-hosts and find out, how, Stephanie, how, how was your day? My day was good. I feel really good because I'm like very close to Long Island right now. So mm-hmm. like my, I feel like I'm like recharging my ancestral roots. The force are is like, strong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really just like feeling, feeling it. How close are we to, to, to Butnick North? Okay, so I grew up in Great Neck, which is right the... Yeah! Not enough cheering for Great Neck, I think, in general, in life. Um, that's, it's like the first town outside of Queens. We, like, we could walk... Pretty, to, we could no. city bike to your... No. Yes. We could, like, take an Uber there. We could, t- <laughs> we could take We could call Uber. my mom, and she could drive us there. <laughs> <laughs> Liel, how are you? Uh, were you done? Sorry, I mean, that's the important fact of your day. I do want to set this up, though, because we have spent the last, I would say, seven and a half hours together... So what you guys are getting tonight is just like an extra special. That's right. Like we've spent a lot of time together We're steeped today. As, as what Usually you're we saying. spend like an hour and yeah. a half a week together recording, but we've spent the entire day together. I picked up Liel's kids from school. <laughs> I took a nap in Josh's car on the way out here. So that was yeah. my car actually. Oh, but he was driving it. He was driving. Yeah, Josh oh. drove my car. Stephanie napped in it. It's we, one big happy family. We actually secretly do like each other, uh, which is really, which is really. Kind but of let nice. me tell you, when I when I didn't nap. Last night, yeah. um, I was in Washington, D.C. and had to drive down to New York. I left D.C. around probably 11, uh, and that meant a very long, very late night drive. Now, at some point, um, once you're on the stretch uh, known as I-95, which God himself forgot long ago, um, I, you know, look at me, got hungry because it's been more than, you know, 45 minutes without right. food. And here's the thing. Three years ago or four years ago, when I was not keeping kosher, this was a delightful occasion. It was like, to... which Roy Rogers do you choose? No, it was to stop at a Burger King. A Burger King is a very specific New Jersey turnpike <laughs> type of tradition. And then, like, you just do Whoppers and it's great. But now I'm kosher, but also hungry. And so what do I do? And so I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to game this. Uh, I'm going to stop at a Burger King. And I bet you the Burger King tastes exactly the same without the thin, cardboard-like, meat-like substance that they put in this thing. It's just going to be the same thing. So I walk. It's now 2.45. Uh, in the morning? In the morning. Between exit three and exit four. I stop at, at, at the Burger King. And there's no one, obviously. What kind of maniac is at a Burger King and a Jersey Turnpike at th- 2.45 in the morning? Were you at the Joyce Kilmer restaurant? I was not at the Joyce Kilmer. Was I it was, the Vince Lombardi? It, it was the James Fenimore Cooper one. <laughs> Thank you. So I always loved it. As a little kid, I ever thought, like, yes. what do you have to do to get a New Jersey rent? Because my grand- I'm from Massachusetts. My grandparents are from Philadelphia. So we used to drive this like, what do you do to get a New Jersey rest stop named after you? Because they're not named after people Either in New write England. write a great book or be governor and not go to prison. Uh, it's the That's two ways in Jersey. basically it. So I walk in. Uh, and there's a gentleman working the grill. Uh, and his name is Billy. It's a, a big name tag. And Bill looks like he's given up on life a very long time ago. Um, and I say, hi, I'd like a, I'd like a Whopper, please, uh, with everything except the meat. And, and Bill sort of looks at me. And he's like, are you, are you insane? Like, is something wrong with you? What, what kind of game are you trying to play with? Are you trying to pay less? Like, is this some kind of con <laughs> game? Are you going to stab me? And so I feel I owe Bill an explanation because it's 2.45 and we're the two only people on earth at that point, right? And I was like, no, I'm kosher. I love everything about this burger. I can't eat the meat. And he was like, oh, it's a religious thing. He goes over to the burger 
station and with care I had never seen before, puts the two buns and then, you know, triple the lettuce, triple the onion, triple the tomato with like such gentle care and then sort of hands me the burger like like it was the afikoman, you know, like, here you go. Now you may continue your Seder. It was amazing. It's the best burger I ever so had. Wait, what does it taste like? Like a grilled exactly cheese? like a Whopper. But is it like a grilled cheese? Yes. Did wow. you say did you say the brocha for mizanot? I did. Or what, I did. Like, what did you? No. What, I guess it's it's mozi, right? I yeah. Mean, it's, it's it was more a shechianu it type was more of <laughs> That like might be a real kosher hack, though, right? People must do that all the time. It's a kosher style hack. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It was oh, yeah. good enough for me. <laughs> I have nothing. What about you, Mark? I have nothing to top that. I was up um, late last night. I was reading through the PDF of our forthcoming book, The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia. Out this fall? Out this fall. We um, thought it would be fun to... So one of the things that happens when, you're, when you host the world's leading Jewcast is that you get a lot of mail from people who have questions that they're afraid to take to their rabbis or in-laws. And they... <laughs> They decide to take them to us. So, you know, dear Mark, Leo, and Stephanie, what is Tzom Gedalia? You know, what is Shavuos? What, why does Barbara Streisand have the weird R without the other A? And it's just all of those. And so we decided to write a book. My friends, the book is coming. We've been talking about it for a while. The newish Jewish encyclopedia. Everything you wanted to know about Judaism from Abraham to Zabar's. It's coming to bookstores near you October 1st. We're going to be traveling the country talking about it. But in the meantime, you can pre-order it. You can go to Amazon. You can go to your favorite independent bookseller. You can also talk to your local JCC or synagogue or university about hosting us. What's in this book? I just want to give you a sense. I'm going to randomly scan through our entries. So the last page of the G's has The Grateful Dead, The Green Line, and Good Shabbos all on it. The first page of the H's has Hadassah, Haganah, Haggadah, Hagar, Hare, Hamish and Halakha. So you can see it just it just goes all over the map. I mean, I'm still in the H's. Hamantashen, Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song, Hanukkiah, Haskalah, and Hatikva. Everything. It's pop culture, it's Jewish learning, it's Torah, it's it's celebrity culture, it's food. We have a guide to Holocaust movies. We talk about Halakha. We talk about Irving Howe. We talk about humanistic Judaism. We talk about the pianist Vladimir Horowitz. Are we giving you a sense of this book that Leal and Stephanie and I wrote? You want to go get this book. It is your one-stop manual for Jewish culture, learning, history, all in one place. It's the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Go get yourself your copy. Leon Nafok is the host of the brand new podcast Fiasco, which tells the story of the 2000 election. He was previously a journalist for Slate and the Boston Globe. Welcome, Leon. Leon, can you get us started? What is a podcast? <laughs> I don't think you need to tell this crowd what a podcast is, do you? Who has never listened to a podcast before? Do it for them, Leon. All right, I will. <laughs> All right. Who has uh, done it for four years and still it's trying basically, to figure it's, out? It's just a radio show you can download, you know, or stream. Uh, it's, uh, they take several different forms. Sometimes they're talk shows. Sometimes, uh, as in my case, they're more like narrative documentaries where you hear interviews with people combined with narration from a host and archival footage that we've harvested from old newsreels. And so uh, they're quite popular, I hear, these days. People seem to be listening to them more intensely than they read articles, which is what I used to do, is write articles. So your new show fiasco breaks down the drama, the very drawn-out drama of the 2000 election. And the first episode starts with the story of Elian Gonzalez, which mm -hmm. is months, months earlier. Why do you choose to start the story there? So with the show that we made before this, Slow Burn, uh, we sort of found this I don't want to say formula, but recipe, let's say, uh, to kind of making familiar events feel new. And, and that sort of involved finding novel connections between causes and effects. Uh, we tried to, with, with, with the first season of Slow Burn that we made, which was about the Watergate scandal, we tried to find uh, a way to sort of tell the story in a sequence that would, people would find surprising. You know, they think they know what happened at, during Watergate because of all the president's men, uh, perhaps if we rearrange the story in, in, a, in, a, in a creative way and talk to people who have not perhaps been canonized in the same way, we can make it feel new. Was that your idea or was that a producer's idea? Like, let's give what, credit where it's due. Like, is, is it you? Were you like, let's look at it through Martha Mitchell? And, yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, so the first episode of, of Slow Burn was about this woman, Martha Mitchell, who was married to John Mitchell, who was uh, at the time running Nixon's reelection campaign. Prior to that, he was the attorney general. 
back in 1972, Martha Mitchell was like the most famous person ever. Like, so there's some Gallup poll that showed that she was no, that she was known that people knew people knew her name. Like 72% of the American population. I might have made that up that number because of 1972, but it was very very high. Trust me. <laughs> uh, but I had never heard of her, you know, and and and. I was sort of astonished to read her story in a bunch of the books that I picked up to sort of start researching. And so when we put out the show, you know, a lot of people who were roughly my age were like, I had never heard of her either. But slightly older people who were alive back then were like, why are you treating this like it's some discovery? And I had to admit, like, it's a little bit like cheating. If you, you know, if you read any of the books, she's in there, you know, but to, to people who haven't read the books, it feels like a revelation. So yeah, I guess it was like my idea to lead with Martha Mitchell. But at the same time, like she was a perfectly known quantity before I discovered her. It seems like, so we're really in year five or six of the podcast explosion, right? I mean, before Serial, mm-hmm. there were podcasts for a dozen years before that, but they were largely radio shows that got packaged into podcasts, right? So the most popular podcasts were This American Life and uh-huh. Radio Lab, which, which began on the radio mm-hmm. and basically went with the NPR clock, which was they had to sort of be at 53 minutes or whatever that is. And we're in a period of, you know, again, maybe half a decade where people are doing straight to podcast original stuff. It means you can swear on them. It means they can be at whatever length. And a few of the biggest ones initially seem to be sort of true crime or, mm-hmm. or real-time examinations of crimes. You're doing history stuff in a way that that people are really enjoying and finding accessible. Was that was that something you thought about, like, we're ready for cool history podcasts? No, I can't claim credit for that. I think the, the idea for, for, for Slow Burn Season 1 was just motivated by the fact that people were just referencing Watergate all the time on the news. Uh, and whenever there's something that's being used as shorthand, there's a temptation to sort of look behind the shorthand and see what the real story was. Uh, you know, because things like, you know, events like Watergate that are so big and so famous, uh, especially when they've been captured in some, you know, in, in, in things like All the President's Men, which is just such a dominant sort of source of people's understanding of what happened. It turns out that when you just, when you look just a little bit deeper, you find all this stuff that has been utterly forgotten and has just not been passed down, you know, to like through conventional wisdom and sort of collective memory. And so speaking of the news, um, here you are making these incredible, beloved historical shows that that have the, you know, privilege of kind of looking at things from the perspective of 20, 30, 50 years down the road. But you're living in the middle of this like unbelievably tumultuous political time. So, so two questions about that. First of all, do you ever kind of have the temptation of of kind of like reshaping the news as you hear them every day as like a slow burn or a fiasco type podcast? And if so, what what would today sound like <laughs> twenty years from now well, in your voice? Yeah. Well, so so I mean, the thing that we tried to do with slow burn and what we're trying to do now with with fiasco is, is look for these sort of peripheral characters who. Uh, again, have not been like canonized in the same way that, say, Woodward and Bernstein have been. Um, and so watching the Trump administration, I think there's just an embarrassment of uh, side characters. I don't, I, guess, I suppose I, I do mean that in both ways. But uh, there's just so many bit players who have sort of walked on stage and then walked off, uh, in part because of the revolving door at the White House. But, uh, you know, one, one, one example I, I remember like being acutely aware of as it was happening was I believe it was uh, Sam Nunberg, who was like an advisor to Trump during the campaign. He was like a friend. He was one of these guys that Trump just calls on the phone to, to chat with. Uh, he went on TV a bunch for like a week, you know, maybe two years ago, and he was wasted the whole time. Uh, <laughs> and she said all these completely bananas things. And I was just very hard for me to not imagine, you know, in 20 years, like ca- capturing this footage and saying, Here, here's who this guy Sam Nunberg was. Like, you never heard of him, but... I wonder if you even have to go that far, right? I mean, 20 years from now, when someone's doing a an American history textbook for AP U.S. history in high school, and and the whole Trump administration is going to, you know, going to get four pages or maybe eight if he wins a second term, will there really be more than a paragraph on Steve Bannon? You know, like, it may be... Think of the people going to... Like, campaign managers... Generally, if they don't ever hold <laughs> right. a major cabinet office, yeah. they, they just go into obscurity. Yeah, and I think that's sort of part of what has been fun for me to uh, watching the news, having made these podcasts, is like trying to guess like what will survive, what will be passed down in, in, in our collective memory, like what will what will seem really important in twenty years, and, and what will seem like a you know merely an amusing uh, footnote. Um, I, I suppose I would have. I, I suppose I would have assumed. Or would assume that Steve Bannon is one of the one of the keepers, um, but someone like 
like Kellyanne Conway and George Conway, it's an amazing subplot <laughs> where they're married to each other and he's just and tweeting. And he's totally named like a country singer. Well, uh, George, George Conway. Conway obviously like has major country hits from the wait, 70s. Who is the guy who was on TV a lot for like a week, um, 16 days, the crazy guy? Yeah, the Mooch, the Mooch. The Mooch. Oh, yeah, well, so that's, like, yeah, And right. I don't remember his real name. Anthony. Anthony Scaramucci. Scaramucci. Yeah, that's yeah. Right, that's so, right. so the interesting thing, thinking about him, because I obviously can't even remember his name, but he seemed like such an important person yeah. for 16 days or however and long it was. And I right? think, I think what uh, the, well, your show's... job was like communications director. Oh, okay. yeah. well, so what, at least at the beginning of the first season of Slow Burn, where you sort of said, what was it like to be just going day to day throughout Watergate? We think of it as this crazy thing. The break-in happened and he was in, you know, he resigned. Mm-hmm. And that actually that happened over a very long period of time. And so the way the traveling through time is very confusing because things ha- feel like they're going so fast now. But when we look back at this period, whatever ends up happening, it won't have, nothing will have happened overnight. Yeah. I think one reason Slowburn took off was that people have become trained to follow the news in this very uh, intense way where it's, it's all just like really, obviously it's quite dark in various ways, but it's also like fun and compulsively kind of, we, you just want to know what happens next and you follow all these subplots and you want to know what all these different people are saying and doing. I think Slowburn showed that you can apply that same level of sort of attention to detail and, you know, kind of uh, excavation to the past. And it's like just as fun as following the news today. Do you find that the show's fan base uh, is divided according to sort of like partisan allegiances? I mean, are the people like, how dare you focus on Clinton when you really should have done another season on this other Republican candidate? Yeah, people, there's definitely, so we, like, we try to, we try to make sure that the show doesn't like alienate people for no for no good reason. Like we, if we, if we can avoid saying something that's going to just like, uh, turn off someone because of their political beliefs, we just, and if, and if it's not worth it, if it's not, if that is not like a, a narrative reason to do it, or if, you know, if it's just, if you want, you well, obviously we want, we want to say true things, you know, and sometimes if you say something true, it will alienate people on one or the other side of, uh, the political divide. But, uh, you know, I take pride, I think in the fact that like, some people thought our second season, which was about the Clinton impeachment, was uh, unfairly critical of Clinton, and other people thought it was unfairly uh, generous to him. Uh, See, that, that, that leads me to you. Now, even people, uh, I don't believe that there are people on Earth who have not listened to any of these podcasts, because uh, they're very, 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 very uh, popular, and, and rightfully so. But <laughs> part of the magic... Uh, and people who haven't listened could, could see this with Leon sitting and talking right now, is that your delivery is like completely sort of calm and even keeled. You're a guide to these very, very passionate events in this way that doesn't get lost. Is, is this you all the time? I mean, do you watch CNN and be like, <laughs> oh, that is a bad thing that happened? Well, <laughs> I don't know if this is quite an answer to your question, but like, I, I, I'm wondering if people in the audience think, like, why is this guy mumbling so much? Why can't he speak up? Why can't he you know, enunciate a little better? The reason is I've been in the studio all day recording and I've put all my effort into trying to sound the way I sound on the podcast. And it's not really who I am or how I talk. and It doesn't really come naturally to me. You know, I was recording an episode today which Joe Lieberman, Joe Lieberman uh, <laughs> figures very prominently and I literally can't pronounce the guy's name. Uh, yeah, like, Neil Benzion Shlomo Lieberman. That's right. like, can, we, can, we, can, we write, can we write him out? Like, I, I ended up having to convince my brain that I was saying Joel Eberman. Joel Somehow Eberman. that was easier. Can you give us a sentence that you said today? Like, give us the voice? Oh, okay. And can you imitate Joel Lieberman? The high-pitched adenoidal whine of Well, you know, Lieberman. I don't memorize the scripts. I read them. So I can't... I, what's, what's the line? Uh... Oh, man, I don't know. I can't remember a line. Is, is this because you were not born here and you were, in fact, a resident, a resident alien? Is this, does this well, have to do with your why, why late arrival to English, your inarticulateness? Maybe. The, I, the best piece of feedback I've ever received on, on the podcast was a random Facebook message that tagged me from someone I don't know. And it said, you know, this show, Slow Burn, it's, it's so interesting. There's so many, like, unfamiliar stories and characters I had never heard of. I've learned so much. There's so many interesting parallels to the present. And best of all, the host has clearly triumphed over a speech impediment. And it's so, <laughs> it's so inspiring, you can barely tell. <laughs> uh, the speech impediment being that you were born in the Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. How yeah. old were you when you came here? I was five. You were I was five. five. So I, I don't think I can blame it. Does, does 
the fact that you were an, you know, an anchor baby for your parents and um, does that, no, in all seriousness, does that have something to do with your outlook on politics? Do you, do you, do you have any immigrant sensibility or your parents certainly came here in adulthood? And, yeah. You know, was this America, like look at America in the 70s. We had stability in Russia. It was Brezhnev, Brezhnev and more Brezhnev. No, 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 no. My, and, I mean, my, 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 my parents were, 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 were very much anti-communist and they, you know, I think if anything, I'm probably more conservative because of how I was raised. Uh, I think, you know, I say in the podcast in the second season about Clinton, like I was, I was raised in a household that supported Clinton that where I was told that he was clearly uh, the hero in the story that was being unfairly maligned by, by, by his enemies. Uh, and which is, I, I realize that's inconsistent with the, with the idea that they're conservative, but, but, but especially lately, I think I like certain, have certain impulses that I might, attribute to like my mother who uh, despite being you know someone who voted for you know Obama and Hillary Clinton uh, culturally I think has certain uh, allergies that can be traced back to her you know upbringing in the Soviet Union so can I say I think we should we should ask one more question but then let's you in the audience will take one from you after we ask our last question I'd love to hear what you want to know from Leon so a lot of Jews who fled the Soviet Union didn't weren't actually raised with like a, the particular strain of Judaism that we know here today, right? Which is like Hebrew school bar mitzvah stuff like that. What were you raised with? Nothing. Uh, I was raised with uh, New Year's Eve instead of any other. Did you have the tree? I had the tree. Yeah. Did I mean, Novigrad a real kind of ech celebration with a. What did you say? The Novigod, like. Oh, Novigod. Yeah, it's yeah New Year's. Yeah, I mean it's we it was it's basically Christmas just six days. You later. get a New Year's Eve tree. Yeah. Do you guys know about that? And I was that? ashamed of it. You know, I was ashamed of the tree. I had the tree in my in our living room, and I thought my Jewish friends who live on the block will see it, and they'll think they'll be confused. Um, Christian friends like they don't know what day of the week it is. Exactly. <laughs> this was six days. So can ago. you explain the tree? Because I don't think everyone really knows about it. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this it's the same idea as Christmas. It's a tree where you put gifts and you you decorate it, and then you put gifts under it, and it's completely uh, you know. It's completely secular. Uh, there's a there's a Father Frost instead of uh, <laughs> instead of uh, what's his name Santa Claus, and he has a he has a daughter. There's daughter Frost. Yeah, Ivanka Frost. <laughs> Snigurichka. Yeah, she accompanies him on the on the on the adventure. But in many ways, the only difference is you get the presents the night of New Year's Eve, not the morning after. And so everyone in the Soviet Union did that, no matter what religion you Correct. were. And yes. then all these Jews come here and they're like, look at this thing, and then they have to get rid of it. Yeah, right? and so like I, was, I wasn't bar mitzvah until quite recently, Stephanie, as you know. Yes. Uh, I didn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I felt quite alienated from American Jews for the reason that I was, just wasn't raised with any of that. We all felt quite alienated from American Jews. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what it is to be an American Jew. So, yeah. uh, so welcome. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. We're thank so you. glad you took a rap here. Uh, <laughs> I did. I do remember one thing very vividly about New Year's, which is we had a little figurine of Father Frost that we put under the tree. It was this beautiful, beautifully made thing. It wasn't quite like a. It wasn't like a stuffed animal. It was more like a puppet. Uh, and you know, I asked at some point in my life, where did this thing come from? Because it, it looks manifestly very old. And my mom told me the story about how she bought it one night when she was a teenager uh, in Moscow, uh, you know, the day of New Year's Eve, maybe the day before, some person who, you know, was trying to sell things on the street for a living came, you know, past her, her door and she happened to be outside and the person said, you, you know, would you like to buy something? And clearly the person was very poor. And my mother haggled for the for the figurine, and she, she, you know, the person clearly was very reluctantly said, "Okay, like whatever it is you have, I'll take." Oh. My mother has never forgiven herself for not paying the full price for the for the Father Frost figurine. Father Frost forgives her though. <laughs> it's very benevolent. Ivanka Frost. So Novigod has become, this is the most interesting thing, it has become a major Israeli celebration because it lets Israelis, a lot of Russians, right, they bought the tradition with them, it's completely secular, and it lets Israelis celebrate Christmas, which they love because they see in the American movies, but without any of the religious elements. Or the plus, snow. Plus there's drinking. So it's a win-win-win Do situation. not tell my kids about it. <laughs> Do we got questions from the audience? Right there. Tell us your, state your name. Arthur Isman. I'm I'm not a pod listener. I've never used it. But what concerns me and interests me is your program is authentic. How do we know about the other programs, their authenticity, 
and who licensed these programs that come out because people are very easily persuaded with information that they hear, that they get over the computer and so on, as we know today with the Russian situation influencing the electorate. So would you be kind enough to tell us who licensed you and how do we know that a program is authentic? When, when you, you said the, the word you're using is license? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question because there are like more than half a million podcasts out there. If you go on you know, iTunes and look at their listings, there, there, are, there are a lot of them. And the barrier to entry is quite low. You can start a podcast in your room with a microphone. Uh, people can say whatever they want. Um, you know, I, I, I think that generally you can apply the same sort of filters that you do to any news you consume. Uh, if you trust the publisher uh, that is paying for the podcast to be made and distributed, that's a good reason to trust it. Uh, if you find that the hosts and, you know, and the, the guests they, they interview uh, sound credible, you, you, know, you can apply the same sort of uh, standards that you do to any form of media. Uh, I don't think podcasts are more or less trustworthy uh, or, um, you know, prone to mm, fabrication or distortion than, 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 than anything else. Leon Nafok, for example, was credentialed by the Boston Globe, among other places along the way. He yeah. makes a podcast that is not just truthy, but true. Yes. He's a taller, younger version of me, I feel like. <laughs> I feel like Julian <laughs> The moppy, like. yeah, there's a lot of moppiness. Which, yeah. <laughs> I feel we kind of look alike, and he's been a terrific Jew of the week. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We, by the way, are uh, licensed. We have our Hechsher from the Vada Rabonim of Queens. Do the, our podcast It's does? very important. Yes. It sure seems like he brought his hair game right into my kitchen and started making omelets. <laughs> it's totally unfair. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Who we got next, Stephanie? Our Gentile of the Week is Claire Malone. She is a senior political writer at 538.com, where she covers the 2020 presidential election and appears on the weekly 538 Politics podcast. Welcome, Claire. Yeah. Okay, so, Claire. Yes. I've been binge listening to your podcast. 
I mean, usually I listen to it weekly if I get behind. It's okay. It's the beauty of podcasts. You can download them whenever you want. I bet. <laughs> can you name all the Democratic presidential candidates? <laughs> Arthur in the back. You want to know how you can trust a podcast? <laughs> Watch this. Okay. Let's see if I can do it. Okay, I'm going to do hash marks with the slash through them. Okay. 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 Uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris... Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, um, Seth Moulton. <laughs> Go Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, Cory Booker. Um, who else am I missing from the Senate? There, there, thank you. There you go. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, um, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, Tim, Don't help her. Tim. <laughs> Stop helping her. We're test- She's the expert. <laughs> Tim Ryan, Wayne Messam. Who? Um, That's a deep cut. That's a person? She's making up names now. <laughs> you, you know, not a person. We literally wouldn't Michelle know. Michelle Goldstein. John Hickenlooper. Uh, That's did, a made-up did, did I say Eric Swalwell yet? No. no. Eric Swalwell. Oh, Swalwell, right. Um, he's a congressman, right? He's a congressman. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. I'm, I'm blanking on the governor of yes. Montana momentarily. Steve, Steve Bullock. Bullock. Yeah. I'm at 15, I think. Mayor yeah. of New York. Oh my God, Bill De Blasio! <laughs> how could we forget? I love that he comes even in this in this city. He's yeah. like the 16th person. <laughs> Mayor of New York for now. Oh, this is bad because I feel like I'm I'm missing like major people that I just am like. Bernie. Oh my God, Bernie. Bernie. Okay. Bernie, 16. Oh, Bennett, Michael Bennett, who I feel very bad is really messing up his brother's career. His brother is the head of the New York Times editorial page. He's James Bennett's brother? Yes, and he has had to recuse himself from all 2020 coverage. Did any of us know that? No, but my mom did. (laughs) Elise knows all. I mean, that's not fair. I feel like it's kind of a a sad move. Oh, interesting. So that also scrambles the Jew question, because I think they're half Jewish. I think James Bennett's half Jewish. I was, my next question would be, name the Jewish candidates among them, but anyway. I believe it. Yeah. Uh, this is too many. Do you want some help? Sure, yeah, just give me, give me a hint about, Western like... Western governor. Besides Bullock and Hickenlooper? Running Western. on climate change only. Oh, Jay Inslee. <laughs> Jay Inslee. West, it's Pacific Northwest. <laughs> um. <laughs> We're at tw- that's 19. Alabama, Alaska. This is not the nicest so way to like start. Marian... Oh my gosh, yes, Marianne Williamson, Oprah's guru. Um, What else? Who am I missing? Castro, Yang, I missed Yang, the Yang gang. Andrew Gillum's, right? Andrew Gillum is not running. Oh, whoops. Yet. Yet. (laughs) We missing anyone? Definitely, I'm missing a few. Mike Gravel, yes. Yeah. And she knows actually how to pronounce all their names. No, yeah. That's I, really didn't mean to, I didn't mean to be a snark. No, you do. Like, you're saying names. I'm like, oh, I've never actually heard them said out loud. I, I, you know what? I can't do it, I guess. No, this I think is, you've done this it. Is a, well. No, you've done it. Round there, of applause. Thank you to the audience. <laughs> now, the next question is, which among them are Jews? <laughs> apparently, uh, Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett, apparently. <laughs> 0.5. Um, Bernard Sanders, I think, would identify as a secular Bernard, Jew. He's Polish. Bernard Ira Bencion Shlomo Yehoshua Sanders. Yeah. Um, this is the joy of not working at a Jewish magazine. You actually don't have to know the answer right. to those questions. Wait, I'm trying. You're missing one. I wonder if they know. Is it a major one? Is Mike no. Ravel Jewish? Uh, who knows? But no. <laughs> Jay Inslee? No. It's Marion Williamson. It's, Will- it's oh. New Age Guru and Freak Show Marion Williamson. <laughs> Who I once had to spend some time with, let she's, me tell you. She has beautiful hair, though. I mean, she's... she's I'd good. vote for that. She By does. that standard, Leon Napoc yeah. should be president. <laughs> yeah, Leon, you also have beautiful that hair. That is how they're going to decide, by the way. They're going to just yes. uh, winner them down by hair. So are you ever just like, this is insane, I can't possibly cover all of you? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolutely. And I think I, I have the luxury of being 538, which is the the website I work for, is kind of more like a, it's a digital magazine, a digital political magazine more than a newspaper, which means we have the luxury of kind of picking and choosing what magazine stories we want to do. So, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN and all those places send out um, people who spend most of their, you know, two years of their lives just like following these people around. Um, and we kind of have the luxury of like picking who we think is most interesting at any given moment. But even then, you know, it's kind of 
But you also do that great bit where whenever someone declares for president, you run a column that says, here is so-and-so's road to the presidency. It's, so their, it's like, yeah, their theory of the case. Right, like, here's what has to happen for Marianne Williamson to become president. Well, we're all about probabilities. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way we're Bill to become president. 86% of the Earth's population must perish. Would anyone... Well, this is a real question. You have to this leave his gym. I mean, this is a New York City audience. Do any of you think that Bill de Blasio should be running? <laughs> Wait, how many of you voted for him? Raise your hand. Just a smattering. And none of you voted for him think he should be president. Should he be mayor? <laughs> barely. barely. I was saying this downstairs before the show, which is that Gloria Steinem has said that she supports like four or five people, but that Bill de Blasio is the one man that she supports, which I thought was very interesting and sort of random. But there you go, Gloria Steinem. She supports women and Bill de Blasio. And Bill de Blasio. And Bill de Blasio. Yeah. So, okay, probability. Like, who are these people are you excited about who's looking good? Who sh- like, who yeah. actually has a chance? Well, I think that... So if you want to be a smart consumer of the, the Democratic primary, you should probably take a look at like the, what we call the first-tier candidates. Um, so the people who are really polling consistently well. So that would be Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, um, Pete Buttigieg, and probably Beto O'Rourke. Those are probably the people, I would say, if I were a betting woman, um, are going to be the last, like, kind of lasting candidates. I would say those people are the people to pay attention to because they've raised the most money, they have the most small donors, which we kind of read as a, a little bit of a metric of, I guess, organic support. So you feel like my wife's predicted ticket of Hickenlooper Castro is not happening. <laughs> That's really random. How did she land on those guys? Um, well, what she said, I mean, this, this wasn't so implausible. She's a beer drinker. No, what she is definitely not. (laughs) What she said was, she's like, look, Western governor, moderate, but progressives in Colorado like him. Okay. I mean, this is a guy who became, who's never lost an election. He became mayor. He became governor. His story is he ran a brew pub. He's got this, like what people like about Biden, which is like white male who relates to all sorts of people and hasn't alienated non-whites. Yeah. In fact, he's done even less alienating of them than Biden. He's like... Great candidate, right? Yeah. And then he'll have to choose a person of color or a woman as his running mate. Texas is more pick-upable than many states. Yeah. Julian Castro. But, you know, I mean, let's take your wife's choice seriously for a second, which is, <laughs> which is like if this were eight years if this were eight years ago and you were saying those people who both have ironclad resumes, who have, you know, one was an Obama administration official, another was a governor, for God's sake, like that's that's a great resume. But I do think that, Trump and honestly, probably Obama did usher in some sort of um, idea that you do need a little bit of a celebrity je ne sais quoi to mm-hmm. kind of capture the national attention. And I think that there are a lot of other more, you know, flavor of the month white guys who talk to all kinds of people or exciting women or, you know, whatever it might be. How does be. that change your job? Because, you know, 538, which is an obsession for some of us, uh, an addiction, maybe. <laughs> Uh, Named you know, after the number of electoral college votes there are, right? Yeah. Isn't that yeah. in, right? In, in, in the halcyon days of uh, you know early uh, late October uh, 2016, we were all paying very close attention, yeah. and, and you know some of us feeling encouraged uh, by those numbers that we were seeing, and and now we're in a very different reality. What happens in a 5:38 newsroom in those two years? What kind of mental shifts are you guys experiencing? Yeah, is, it, is there a difference? Sure. I mean, I think if anyone's seen the site, you kind of know. Are we call it the model, <laughs> which is basically the sort of thing that changes day to day, that aggregates all the polls, that kind of says, this is the chance that Donald Trump has to win the presidency, and this is the chance that Hillary Clinton has to win the presidency. And you might be familiar with the New York Times infamous needle, right? Um, and what we were all trying to do with those things was sort of give people the probabilities. And what we've thought about in the past couple of years is how to be more cogent and clear and transparent in, in both depicting probabilities. So we've tried to, in the midterm elections, we changed the model a little bit to try to be a little bit more explanatory about what it, what what this actually what this model actually means. Kind of spell it out a little bit better. And just in our writing, particularly about the primary, particularly when there's so many candidates, to say, listen, we're going to cover this. We're a horse race site, but at the end of the day, we want to be really clear that like we don't know what's happening. We were too, you know, naysay about Donald Trump during the primary. We, you know, we kind of left some of the numbers by the wayside and maybe picked up too much of the human conventional wisdom that he he couldn't be the nominee. And so we're trying to be transparent about 
we're looking at our past mistakes and, and trying to educate people. But um, it's certainly been, I think a lot of news organizations, whether or not they're as vocally transparent as we are, have had that same process, which is just saying, what can we do better to make people have more trust in the numbers and the news that they see and just be better consumers of news in general? You grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio. I did. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah great neck. place. <laughs> I, I imagine Shaker Heights is like the platonic ideal of like America. It's a great, it's a great town. I've never been there. I actually just wrote a story about Shaker Heights. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about that because you you know you write about politics. You don't yeah. pr- usually write personal things, but you sort of went back to the place you grew up yeah. and talked about what had happened there over the past few years. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so I wrote a piece that was about basically um, a class divide in the Democratic Party, for lack of a better word, and I sort of chose the piece is called A Tale of Two Suburbs, and it's about the suburb that I grew up in, Shaker, which if you guys are familiar with is a pretty like affluent, well-educated place that was integrated by Jews largely, actually were, were foremost in sort of racially integrating Shaker and making it a more diverse place. And then on the opposite side of the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland is a sort of blue collar, Eastern European Catholic working class town called Parma. And they were both democratic voting cities for as long as I was alive up until 2016 when Parma voted for Trump. And what I kind of wanted to do is, I think we all sort of know that obvious narrative of like, yeah, of course, Parma voted for Trump and Shaker stayed, you know, well-educated Shaker voted for Clinton. But I kind of wanted to dive into the histories and like, why do we vote the way we vote? Why did I grow up the way I grew up? You know, what were the reasons? Because it turns out that Shaker actually had bombings of black people's homes at one point in time. This didn't make it into the piece because it had to get cut for length, but there was going to be a Jewish section of Shaker. They were going to kind of put all the Jews in one part of the city, which actually actually kind of ended up happening organically. It was called Shaker. (laughs) Yes. But I just sort of wanted to dive into, you know, you get your politics from your family, from the place you grew up, and I really wanted to tell that story both for Shaker and for Parma. And honestly, for me, it was kind of a, um, I don't think you think a lot about particularly the suburb you grew up in. Maybe if you grew up in New York, it's, you know, everyone's writing about New York, but who's going to write about the boring suburb you grew up in? So sticking with your childhood for a moment. Sure. Do you want to lie down for this? You were one of the first, <laughs> I think you're the first, uh, you, you become tonight one of the first sister-sister pairs to appear on Unorthodox yes. as Gentiles of the Week. That's oh, very exciting. Because your elder sister, Noreen, yes. was on our show. Yes. And her Gentile of the Week question about whether it's okay and when is it okay to refer to Jewish American princesses or yeah. Japs became a running question on our show. We ended up doing a special episode around. I mean, really, yeah. it was it's important in the unorthodox history, as Ira knows. But there are not just two Malones. No. There are 20 of you. No, there are six of you. Six kids, yeah. Six kids. Yeah. And is as the father of five, I want to know, is that why you are so sane, intelligent, and well-adjusted? <laughs> Maybe my family thinks differently. <laughs> What was that like? It was, I mean, well, first of all, as I think you probably know, it doesn't feel, it only feels crazy when, or like really big when other people are saying like, whoa, there's so many people in your family. Like inside (laughs) of it, it just sort of feels, it's fun, honestly. Um, I think having a lot of siblings kind of like, my my oldest sister says, sisters are here to keep you in your place. And (laughs) she's always said that, but it is kind of like a... um, yeah, it's just like a different, I, I mean, I don't quite know how to verbalize it because I just think it's like a very, you know, there are ecosystems, there are friendships, there are siblings that are really good friends at one point in time in life. And then, you know, you you make new friends with like your older siblings. Like I remember that happening when I kind of reached college and I became like actual friends with my, you know, one of my older brothers was in living at home in law school when I was in late high school. And that was really fun because like we, then we had like a different friendship. So that's like a really cool thing. But I do think, um, as you guys know with Noreen, but also my other siblings are all just genuinely really smart, funny, cool people. So, and my parents are are pretty uh, talented at like raising kids, I guess. So, <laughs> which my mom once told me because I, I, she was like, you know, we're good at which this, I right? know because my no, parents because, said because so. once I had, I asked her, you know, I, um, because people sometimes say rude things to people who have big families, particularly mothers who have big families. People sort of take it on themselves to say things to you, which is terrible, never do it. But in adulthood, I had been, I used to be a fact checker, and I had worked on the story about a family who adopted like 27 children. And I talked to all the kids, and I talked to the parents, and I was thinking about it a lot. And so I finally, as an adult, asked my mom, like, so like, what did you, 
you know, why did you and dad have so many kids? And at first she was like, thought I was asking like a judgmental question. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, I know you had a conversation about it. And she said, well, honestly, your father and I decided that we were very talented at raising children and that we should, <laughs> we should have them. And I love that answer because it's completely true. I mean, it was completely vocational for them. And they were, you know, we, you, all, you had to do a sport every season. You had to play two instruments. Like, it was very... There was a Malone. Oh, there was a Malone sure formula. You're not yeah. Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> you're from Shaker. No, we call it she the... was she was field hockey captain at Georgetown. <laughs> not not Jewish. Not Jewish. We... <laughs> field hockey captain in high school. I rode crew at Georgetown. <laughs> wow. Oh. Well then. <laughs> no, but we call it. It's a it's a Celtic tiger mother. That's a the... Celtic tiger. So <laughs> we are going to ask you for your Gentile of the Week yes. question because Gentiles always can come with a question to us. And then if there's time, maybe one question from the audience as well. But what can we, an internationally recognized, certified <laughs> consortium. by the... Consortium. Consortium certified by the... Vada Rabonim. The Vada Rabonim of Queens. <laughs> what can we tell... That's like Council of Sages. Sure. What can we tell you? Uh, what can we answer for you? So I wanted to keep with the Malone formula of is it offensive? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was sparked by this is, this is actually a little bit of a political question hear me out my question is is calling someone a shiksa rude and should people stop doing it and I ask this because you know I've heard people sort of say it like lovingly to their partner kind of like jokingly but also there is a recent politics adjacent story about how um, Carly Kloss who is a supermodel who got married to the, yeah, the Kushners. The good Kushner. The good Kushner, Josh I guess. Kushner, yeah. <laughs> the younger Kushner. Yeah. Um, there, was a, there were some tabloid reporting that, um, you know, Ivanka Trump had called Carly Shiksa and that there was some, like... <laughs> anyway, there was... <laughs> there were sort of... What there a were sort time of to be alive. <laughs> there were sort of layers upon layers and it got me thinking. But yes, my question is... is is so that's a unique so much story to wrap your because mind that's around Ivanka who converted into Orthodox Judaism to marry Jared, then like hazing the, <laughs> the younger sister, younger brother's girlfriend. I think that's in a Wait, lot. They're married now. It's not her girlfriend. This was, no, but this was the, way back when. Oh. The whole story was like, Ivanka no one, was yeah. like, you only converted reform, you shiksa. <laughs> Here's what I have to but say. But that's about, back when she was a shiksa, right? Sorry. But even outside, even outside the Kushner-Trump yeah. ecosystem. <laughs> I'm going to start this one. That's an amazing question. I actually can't believe we have not been asked about the word shiksa in four years of doing this show. But So I think it's a very offensive word because I think it's like a nasty word about a woman that like implies all sorts of things. And I don't use it. I mean, when your sister came on and said, can I say Jap? I was like, well, yes, but only in like, <laughs> yes, if you do this, this, and this. But for Shiksa, I'm like, I have no reason to call someone that because to me it is so judgmental in a way that's so rude. And I think if you want to call yourself that, right, like you can do that. It's one of, the, it's one of those like in words, I feel like. I'm trying to imagine the situation in which Claire calls herself a Shiksa. <laughs> well, it was also on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, right, is that the... the... Yeah, that gets everything wrong. Right. That show is your worst. It's it has some some strengths. That show is their worst guide to everything mid century Jewish. No, but that was the magic. same actual thing. That was their calling Astrid, who converted to marry the brother a shiksa, which is like, and so that thread is especially offensive because it's like she actually is Jewish. Yeah. So there's like the mm. convert shaming. Leal, do you have? I, I'm going to bat clean up here. You know how I feel about bad words. I, I rarely miss an opportunity <laughs> to use to, them to to adopt them uh, heartily. <laughs> I'm with Stephanie 100% in this one. It just feels like there's something really yeah. hurtful and mean-spirited. Like, I, I can't conceive of a notion in which this would be used. Like, as we spoke when Stephanie sort of gave the taxonomy of the word Jap, like, well, here's a situation where you could say something is Jappy. Like, you don't have to call a person a Jap, but Stephanie I, I explained, like, oh, this is Jappy. Uh, with with Shiksa, like I can't imagine a situation in which this would not just be a, a, a needlessly cruel jab. So I'm I'm voting. And Stephanie. before you back up, it's interesting because your sister's question was is actually was a story where someone like could she say could she describe someone as that sure. like yeah like is that a word that you need to you you can only use in certain if you are of the community and sort of this is the flip side of that question yeah. Just like, it's not my thing to call someone. Right. I'll just sort of draw a distinction between Jewess, which is a word I love and I think is being reclaimed and all of us should use. <laughs> but oh. and There are people who disagree. Many of them are over 60. But I think... And me. And, and me. Stephanie. 
and Alana Newhouse, our editor. But there are young Jewish women. I mean, there's a, the Jewish Women's Archives had a blog called Jewesses with Attitude. I mean, there are specific situations where some younger women, Jewish women have reclaimed it. Part of the answer there is it was once upon a time non-offensive. Yeah. And then it became offensive. But there's a history of it being an actual just noun. Jap, I hate, and I disagree with Stephanie that it can be used, but I acknowledge that there are communities of Jewish women who use it affectionately in the in-group. Yeah. There has never been a community of people who have nicely used shiksa yeah. or even neutrally used. I mean, it means like worm or vermin. The male equivalent is shagets. I thought shagets See, I didn't know worm. there was a male equivalent. I, I mean, there's not a male equivalent. No, shagets basically like un unholy, unclean. Abomination would be the, the closest. Yeah, yeah, the male version is amazing. And so that's why no, I think. But the male version is terrible. No, but I'm saying it's amazing that it exists and no one really and knows no one it. it. Because, yeah. because we call women shiksas. We don't call men shagets. Like, you don't call Craig... Daniel Craig, a shagets because like he's married though. to Rachel. We did in Tablet yeah. call him a shagets, though. Yeah, because we're like, someone needs to start. I think when doing he married this. Rachel Weiss, we called him a shagets, but we shouldn't have. <laughs> and that was bad of us. In, our, in the newest Jewish encyclopedia, don't we have an entry for shiks appeal? Yes. But as it relates like, to Seinfeld and like this idea, I think you wrote it. Did I write that? <laughs> I think it's actually the laser beam f like attraction some Jewish men have to non-Jewish non women. women. Yeah, I mean, it also sort of like brings up a subject which is that a lot of Jewish men fetishize Jewish women or uh, Gentile women. Yeah. And so, and then... The Woody Allen, like... Yeah, yeah, and that's not illegal or wrong and interfaith marriages aren't illegal or wrong, but the word shiksa gets deployed in critical ways in those situations. Wait, so are you pro or con? I can't tell. Yeah. I'm con. You're I think con. they're all con. You're con. Well, what all if, con. okay, what if there were a bunch of women who were married, were not Jewish, married to Jewish men and they called themselves like the shiksas? I would be okay with that. because that was assembly? Like, yeah, like they would be, like that was their... That's what they called each other, and it was a way of like. But I'd hate them. <laughs> I wouldn't find it offensive, but I'd be like, "That's the thing you talk no, about." No, because when you that's get you taking back a word and reappropriating something that someone would maybe like your mother-in-law would call you, and so <laughs> like if Car this is all very like Adrian. What was the I'm Adrian, the Australian feminist who reclaimed the c word. Which I'd Jermaine Greer? Yeah, it's like very Jermaine Greer, like reclaiming everything, right? Yeah. yeah. That's like the... She would no doubt write a sort of hot take about why it's okay for her to use shiksa yeah. as a Gentile Australian woman. <laughs> um, that's a great question. The Malone women come with the best... Wait, how many... You have two more sisters? Two, two other sisters. We need their Gentile of the Week questions ASAP. They'd be good. They'd be sharp. They would yeah. be great. Hi, I'm, I'm Jesse Ash. I'm from Fresh Meadows. Thank you all for this joyous and riveting conversation. Um, question about fact-checking, since the, the truth is hard, as, as some publications have, have recently published. Um, who, who's, who, who are the religious leaders, the rabbinate, or the Beit Din of uh, 538 and, and this podcast? Who do you look to to keep you all in check? And, and I've, I've listened to many podcasts, but I've actually never heard corrections on things that are thank you for coming um posted online to be like oh this is an error oh, you sure. it. The, the um, well i think for us as far as like fact checking the podcast is that we um who, who's we probably who cut i would say maybe five to ten minutes of, of a podcast and often that'll be like you know we're looking something up online before we say it <laughs> or if it turns out that we got something wrong we'll we'll the producer will cut it before it runs. So I guess that's like how we handle the the fact-checking portion of, of podcast stuff on we, a new show, basically. We do it differently. We have a very active listenership who will tell us <laughs> repeatedly it's, when we are wrong. Called, Can you imagine? Jew checking. Yes. That's the, the <laughs> it's shocking that a Jewish podcast, but basically we'll hear from people who said, you know, you said this thing, it's not right. Or like you said this thing, it offended, you know, people feel very much like they can communicate with us. We have a very active Facebook group where people are like, that thing Mark said this week was dumb. And I'm like, like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, we're part of Tablet Magazine, which is, you know, a, the leading Jewish news and culture publication online in America. And no, and um, they literally pay me to say that. But um, the, I, like we we are under the auspices of an actual journalistic organization, and so we we there is that weight on us. Like I can't say something that is defamatory. Yeah, Claire Malone, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. Thank you for having me. 
Hey, J. Crew, do you like talking about yourself? If you're like me, you like talking about yourself, at least a little. So listen, here's a chance to talk about yourself and help out your favorite podcast. Would you take our listener survey? If you go to bit.ly slash uosurvey19, you can answer all sorts of questions about who you are, your background, what your connection to Judaism is. Help us figure out just how wonderful and diverse our listening population is. Why do we need you to take this survey? Well, advertisers want to know about who our listeners are, foundations that might give us grants want to know about who our listeners are. And most of all, we want to know about who our listeners are. So listen, could you go to bit.ly slash uosurvey19? It'll take like five minutes. And actually, it's kind of a fun survey. It's kind of enjoyable to fill out. I took it myself. Right now, we have about 150 responses to our survey. We really want to get to 1,000. I know that sounds crazy, but given how many of you there are, we think we can do it. Go to bit.ly slash uosurvey19. Talk back to us. Leo, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a mazel tov. A collective mazel tov to the people of the great state of Israel who, uh, having had so much fun with their previous election two days ago, uh, decided to have another one three weeks from now. And so let's have, uh, let's have you know, admeavestrim. Let's have as many as we would like. And after we do ours, we're going to turn them around over to you. Yeah. So you get to say that. I'm going to say mazel tov to my parents because they came to the show and it's the sweetest Yay. thing. I'm going to say mazel tov to uh, my daughter, Rebecca, whose team placed top four at the Memorial Day soccer tournament off of the Mass Pike in the 90 degree heat this past weekend. Gentile Claire Malone, do you have a mazel tov this week? Um, do we come back to you? I guess... Um, well, my, my 10-year college reunion is this weekend, Ooh. so maybe like mazel tov to the Jesuit college class of 2009. <laughs> I hear 09 was a, a good year for the Hoyas. Great year. Great year for the Hoyas. And, and audience members, have, have you any mazel tovs? Wait for the microphone, please. Tell and us your name. You are. Yeah. Hi, my name is Alexa. I'm from Forest Hills, and today is my... Sis, my brother-in-law's birthday, my sister-in-law's birthday, but not married to each other. And it's also happy anniversary to you, but my parents-in-law's, my, my mother and father-in-law's 50th anniversary, and they got married at Leonard's of Great Now. <laughs> Leonard's is great. They do a great bat mitzvah. Sarah, who do we have? Hi, my name is Rochi Cohen. I'm a very nice Jewish name. Um, I have two mazatas. One is to my best friend, Ashley Jacob. She's actually the one who introduced me to your podcast, so I want to send her a shout-out. She God lives in Israel. Her. She would have loved to be here tonight. And also mazatav to our youngest son, Malachi, who had his upsharon on Monday on Memorial Yay. Day. Yay! What a cool name. Yeah, that's a good More name. people should name the kids Malachi. It's Malachi. I should say, by the way, that the other day I had to say to Sid, because we have a nine-month-old boy and his hair's getting a little long, I was like, so, are we going upsharon? Definitely. And I'm, I'm pushing for it. We'll see if I... W- that could be the next sort of plot line on our podcast. I, I went to two upsharins oh. this weekend. Like, well, it was just great. Just from, Your from beard needs an upsharin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Do you want to do it? <laughs> Live on the show. Hi, my name is Carol Hendelman, and my son turns, I hate to say it, 40 tomorrow. And um, my sister from Little Rock, Arkansas, loves your show and thinks you should come there. Oh, she listens all the time. She's Mazel so thrilled that son. I'm here today. I have been to Arkansas four times. I have been to, done more Arkansas than most people have covered a political campaign, and I would love to go back. Josh, who do you have? Hi, I'm Jessica Lehman Ash, originally from Cambridge, UK, but now of Brooklyn, New York. And I wanted to say Mazel Tov to my dad, who's sitting here, who's come to visit, because it was him who saw this uh, recording, this live recording posted in Tablet Mag, despite the fact that he lives thousands of miles away, and suggested that we come. And my mother-in-law and husband, who are from Fresh Meadows, well, obviously this is local, but also, you know, roundabout, roundabout Mulberry Bush as well. Anyway, Mazel Tov, Dad. Mazel Tov, Dad. Yeah. Hi, I'm Linda Lederman, and um, my two sons are here tonight. They are both huge unorthodox listeners. And my mazel tov is to my son, Ethan, who is going for his bachelor party this weekend. Where is he going? Where's he going? I'm going to say mazel tov to the lucky lady who gets the, the fruits of the bachelor party. The where? bachelor party is like the upshearing of the single life. <laughs> That's right. um, where is it? Wow. wow. Destination bachelor party. And his other brother planning it? <laughs> I feel like he should get a mazel tov, really. It's a lot of work. 
Leo, where was your bachelor party if you had one? I, I refused one. Mine was in New Haven. <laughs> well, uh, two, we have count. room for two more. Yes, Hi, sir. My, my name's Nathan Highwell, and it's my uh, daughter and son-in-law's 14th wedding anniversary tomorrow. Right. And just to help you out as, as a spot checker, you forgot to mention your book on the bar mitzvah tour. Well, it's true. Thank you. That's a deep cut. Yes. I read it. Did you? Baruch it's good, right? So, yeah. My, the Bar Mitzvah Crasher is, is back out on Amazon. So thank you for the plug, sir. I appreciate it. Do we have a final Mazel Tov this week? All right. Sarah? No pressure, but... Pick well. Hi. My name is Steve Teleki. My son, uh, Seth Teleki, was just promoted from first lieutenant to captain. The United States Army is a lawyer in Germany at the moment. Mazel Tov, Captain Seth. I like that. So, I bid you... It's so funny. We have, we have a person in tablet who was uh, a captain uh, and a, you know, in, in the American army, and we were talking about the difference between the American army and the Israeli army and, and what people call their you know, commanding officers. And he's like, so in the Israeli army, let me get this straight. Lieutenant is dude. Captain's bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts, criticisms, concerns, and fact checks to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call our listener line at 914-570-4869 to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. You should wear or carry Unorthodox. We have onesies, mugs, shirts, underwear, all sorts of things. No baby is too young to be a billboard for our show. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Thousands of other people are there. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem. They're online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Wise of the Hollis Hills Bayside Jewish Center. direct all really angry criticisms toward him. He would like to bet them for us. We usually come to you from Argo Studios in the Flatiron District, but today we are at the HHBJC, the Hollis Hills Bayside Jewish Center in beautiful Queens, New York. Shalom, friends. <laughs>